This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America, the smart choice for ID implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant 18013-5, and surpasses AMVA guidelines. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AmvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the AMVA community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the AmvaCast, everyone. Uh, this week, we are stretching our boundaries. <clears throat> we are going to have a conversation that's a little bit different than what we normally do on this podcast, and that's because my guest is Dr. Julie Shablitsky with the Maryland Department of Transportation, the Chief of Cultural Resources. Dr. Julie, can I call you that? Yes, you may. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So those uh, those of you listening that were at our annual conference in Baltimore just a few weeks ago might remember Dr. Julie from our opening session where uh, Chrissy Neiser as our host wanted to give the guests a sense of where they were in the surroundings. And so we did that through a presentation that Dr. Julie gave and we said, hey, <clears throat> this is interesting stuff. Maybe we should get the rest of the community to hear about it. Um, but I want to start, before we talk about some of the recent discoveries in Maryland, some folks might be unaware that many DOTs have this type of resource within the Department of, of Transportation. So let's first talk about what is your chief of cultural resources? Yes. Let's translate that into, into layman's terms. Yeah. Cultural resources specifically is resources that have a cultural um, aspect to them. So think archaeological sites, think historic cemeteries, architectural history, so buildings, bridges, even culverts, anything that's that's man-made or um, even a domestic site where someone may have lived themselves. So that's that's a cultural resource. And wh- how does it fit into a DOT infrastructure, infrastructure planning and maintenance, that that intersection. You mentioned culverts and bridges and those types of infrastructure, but I'm not sure everybody would think about it in the context of culture. Yeah, that's the biggest question and often a surprising response when I say I'm an archaeologist for a Department of Transportation. Mm -hmm. And they always say, we never thought that they had those. Right. But the, but the reason that they do is because there's both federal and sometimes state laws that require DOTs to consider their impacts on resources, such as archaeological sites, historic buildings, and cemeteries. And those laws came on the books during the 1960s and 1970s, during a time when we were in a period of urban renewal across the nation. And mm-hmm. so we, as we began to blow through neighborhoods and destroy communities, unfortunately, you know, we, we ended up realizing in hindsight, well, maybe we shouldn't have done that. We should have done it better. And we should have considered mm-hmm. what we did before we began to get excited about, you know, I guess, connecting the East Coast to the West Coast. And in doing that, these resources, um, like I said, were impacted, but we have both federal and state laws on the books that allow us to consider impact. So what does that look like and what does that mean? So what that means is that to be able to do that, a construction agency, a DOT, mm-hmm. needs to hire archaeologists and architectural historians, usually with master's degrees and PhDs, mm-hmm. because they have the experience and the breadth of knowledge to be able to look at an area that's going to be impacted. Think mm-hmm. about the widening of a highway or the installation and the construction of a roundabout. Right. And they can look at that property. They can look at historic maps, understand how the soil is formed, and tell you whether or not you're going to have a high probability to impact something important 
or if it's already been blitzed and don't worry about it and build what you want. Mm-hmm. So with our expertise, we can help in the planning process. And I imagine you know some of our members are part of DOTs and they might be familiar with that environmental impact analysis that you have to do as part of a particularly a new project or expanding existing infrastructure. That's where you and your team would come in and do the work before anything else is done. When that design, I guess they have a design, you take that design, you go to the space and say, okay, what, what is the impact here? Right. That's an important um, aspect to also realize is that we try to get in the beginning of the planning stage of things. So when they're beginning to say, we want to widen here, we want Mm -hmm. to put a new piece of infrastructure here, we can then look and say, well, can you either avoid or minimize this particular location because there's something important here that we can't replace once Mm. it's gone? And so, uh, so that's important to know because a lot of times other people might think, well, they come in when they discover something during construction. Right. And that's actually what we don't want to do. We want to be able to you know, construct projects in our team environment where we have minimal time and impact and money and expended resources. I think, though, the interesting part of what you're saying, though, is we often hear about the high-profile situations where either something was found during construction or something was found and the project isn't going to happen. But the ideal space is it happens in advance and you can mitigate the design to still allow the project to continue, but in a, you know, culturally sensitive, environmentally sensitive way right so it becomes a back and forth between you and the engineers and the the designers yeah we're absolutely a team yeah so in this team environment we sit down with with the engineers with the planners with the folks who are experts in natural resources and cultural resources and in that team we say this is our project how do we thread this needle how do we avoid important habitat how do we Mm. avoid people's homes how do we avoid this cemetery this archaeological site and still get this road built or this even uh you know a bus stop sure constructed anything that's going to disturb what's there has to be taken Mm -hmm. now you mentioned you know the bring in phds like yourself folks with masters i would imagine when you were in the process of your education and training Applying that skill set in the transportation world is not something I would imagine would, you know, a archaeological student or other students of this craft would necessarily think of that application as a first case study in mind as to where that work would apply. That, that's me guessing. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. Yeah, exactly. When you think of an archaeologist, you think of Indiana Jones of course, or yes. um, sometimes Lara Croft. And, <laughs> and so it's, it's something that you look at as, as archaeology in faraway lands. Yeah. So, so gold, um, pyramids, all these sorts of exciting, really right. old um, archaeological sites. But archaeology is right in our own backyard. And so as an archaeological student, you kind of enter in thinking, maybe I'm going to become a professor and I'm going to teach other students about this, mm-hmm. or um, I'm going to be doing research and, and learning all about um, different cultures. So that's kind of where you begin, but then as you go along your educational tour, you realize that that archaeological jobs exist all over the place in all different types of places. So of course there's university professors, which there's not as many of those as you'd think, and then you have um, government agencies. Mm-hmm. So you might have the National Park Service. Sure. You have the the US Navy that they do underwater archaeology. Uh, you have um, state DOTs and mm-hmm. again they're going to be this group of 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 a of a Maryland, in fact in Maryland these state agencies that will have these groups of people that do consider impacts to to archaeological sites and other historic buildings and bridges. And so since it is there are federal laws and state laws but in case of that there's federal laws um, does that mean every DOT, as far as you know, in, in the country has 
a counterpart like yourself? Yeah, DOTs. Every single DOT across the United States of America has a group of culture resource experts. You're going to have archaeologists and architectural historians in, in of course, Maryland, yep. but also Minnesota, Texas, Georgia, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And all these places have to rely on those experts to help them get them through the planning process so that their, their projects are going to be mm-hmm. eligible for federal funds. And do you ever interact with your counterparts in, in the other states? And a part, a big part of our community is all about bringing, you know, the motor vehicle community together. I know on the DOT side, at least on the engineering and planning side, of course, AASHTO is a, you know, is a large presence. Does that include your, your discipline at all? Do you have the opportunity to compare, hey, this is what we found this week. What did you find? Yes, these, <laughs> cultural, these cultural resource experts are usually grappling with very similar problems. Yeah. Uh, you know, what do we do when we have a community that's going to be impacted by a project? What if they want a bridge? What do we do with these historic bridge structures? Can mm-hmm. we can we sell them? How, how much success have other people had in this? Mm. So there's all sorts of kind of random, unique problems that we bring up to each other. We also look at best practices. Mm-hmm. So see where people have had success in um, doing, in a sense, mitigation banking. So you have, if you have an archaeological site that has a Native American village, what do we go ahead and do if we're only going to get hit part of it? Can we go ahead and, and look somewhere else and do a different dig somewhere else? And what mm-hmm. sort of success have we had? So we usually bring these sorts of problems that other people may have had to each other. Yeah. Right. Now, you mentioned before, you know, when you're doing the training, all the different paths that it could take. What was what was your story when you were going to school? Were you uh, you hoping to be the next Laura Croft, or what would you have in mind when you were going going after this this line of education? Well, I wanted to be an archaeologist ever since I was seven years old. Oh wow! And so it was a situation where I'd go to the library and check out books on, you know, Mayan gold and Egyptian mummies, and go through those. And so in my mind, when I first embarked on my archaeological education, I mm-hmm. thought that it would involve places of faraway lands. Um, But that's not how it turned out because through the process I realized archaeology is ubiquitous. You can Mm -hmm. have important archaeological and cultural resources in your backyard. And I didn't have to necessarily be an Egyptologist or a Mesoamerican archaeologist. And so I ended up finding out that things as recent as only 100 to 200 years ago had just as much fascination Mm -hmm. and intrigue for me. Yeah. And so how how long have you been with uh, MDOT? I've been with MDOT for over 15 years, and before that, I was with the Oregon Department of Transportation for three okay. years. All right. So I'm from the, I'm from Minnesota originally, but wow. I, I went, went one west direction and, and came then went back east, the and direction. hopefully I'm done moving now. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So uh, in those years here, uh, tell us about some of the exciting projects that you've had the opportunity to work on in your time with MDOT. Well, the important thing about MDOT is they, of course, do archaeological sites that are going to be impacted or have the potential to be impacted by highway projects. Mm-hmm. But they also have a program um, funded both by the federal government, Federal Highway Administration, and and the state that puts money into projects that have a transportation link, specifically public stewardship archaeology projects. So some of the most interesting ones have usually involved those of with black history, African-American communities, Mm -hmm. because archaeologists seem to have the most impact and can make the most change because these are stories that aren't always written down. They're mm-hmm. sometimes not told and it can be difficult. The, mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about difficult history here, especially yeah. when we're looking at um, enslavement yeah. of people. So I think some of the most interesting projects are the most recent project we're working on and that yeah. is the archeology span of Harriet Tubman's birthplace. Okay. So that, for those that don't know Maryland geography, let's try to walk, walk them through it. I've 
you know, been in the area for the better part of 20 years, but that the, the at eastern part of Maryland, you know, it, you know, many ways it's not very far away, but could be a different state for those of us who, you know, live in the shadows of D.C. So yeah. for, for those who don't know the area, you know, walk them through where in Maryland this this place is. Well, Maryland's very unique. Um, as someone who's looked at and lived all over uh, the United States, I find that Maryland, as small as it seems, is very, very diverse, very densely populated. But in Western Maryland, that's a lot of times where the, most of the population is living. You have Baltimore City, you're on the edge of D.C. Yep. But as you go east across the Chesapeake Bay, the large Bay Bridge, yep. you get to the eastern shore. And this is this kind of, I want to say sleepy, but not. It still has culture. It has a lot of things going on, a lot of maritime, recreational, fishing, you know, crabs. Mm-hmm. But it's also a place where it's the time, it's a land that time I forgot, really. Hmm. Because down in the southern part of the eastern shore is this place uh, this county is dorchester county Mm -hmm. and it's it's swampy it's wet it's it's very um sparsely populated they hold on some of the traditions including that of even muskrat festivals they lived a lot on these muskrats and they even eat them today and they have a festival they're they're still eating they're still eating muskrats and again it's culture it's a time it's a land that time forgot so here Have you had muskrat? Absolutely not. Okay. All right. <laughs> nope, never will. <laughs> uh, so so we're so this is a very important yeah. place, but it's also a place with important history. And it's the place where one of uh, America's sheroes came from, and that is mm-hmm. Harriet Tubman. Yeah. And it was interesting because right around when the pandemic, right before the hand pandemic hit, the US Fish and Wildlife Service ended up purchasing a parcel of land on Peter's Neck in Dorchester County, this part of the eastern shore of Maryland. And they knew from historical documents that somewhere around there, the cabin of her father, Ben Ross, existed, but no one knew where X marked the spot. Mm. They knew it was somewhere out there. And so during that time period, a couple of years ago, they asked the Maryland Department of Transportation to come out there and take a look since a lot of these DOTs have really um, well-trained archaeologists who are constantly in the field and looking at reports and, and mm-hmm, doing studies. Mm-hmm. And so we had this reputation of working on a lot of African-American sites and having great success because we do we do have um, a lot of funding to, to do things right and properly. So when we went out there and began to look at this area, as someone who's not from here, I was shocked. It is wet. Sea level mm-hmm. rise is a thing. And these sites were quickly becoming inundated. And I didn't know if Ben Ross's home site even existed, if it was still there above above the water. But we committed to working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to go out and try and find his home. And that was a fairly unusual project in that sense, in that it wasn't connected to a planned transportation project or even one that's maybe likely to happen, but it was more where... U.S. Fish and Wildlife said there's this local expertise. How could we leverage them to understand this land that we've just acquired? Yeah, exactly. What's a highway archaeologist doing in the swamp? <laughs> so so the way that we decided that it would, we could make this partnership work is that whatever we would find would be incorporated into the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Byway and those interpretive interpretive signage, mm-hmm. outreach material. So if we can have a transportation link and looking at how mm. she moved her people north what did what sort of roads did she use? And just the fact that we were going to be digging and looking alongside of a transportation route, that made sense 
the why we were there. Right. And despite the name, of course, the Underground Railroad wasn't a physical railroad, wasn't a, you know, it was not, it was not infrastructure. It was a, it was a network of families and people. Yeah. And I'm not sure everyone knows that. Maybe you can talk a little no, bit about No, absolutely. And that's the thing that I'm actually shocked that a lot of people don't know is that the Underground Railroad wasn't a railroad. It wasn't a series of tunnels. Right. It wasn't, you know, a series of places where people like physically would get underground and hide. It was a system of safe houses. So you might have, um, you know, a free black family or a Quaker family who would, through, you know, secret secret symbols, words, mm-hmm. symbols on the house, a quilt over the door, mm. um, be able to communicate who, to people who were escaping that they were safe. This was a safe place. For a them safe to place. Be. Yeah. And so this underground road was just a building after a building, a barn after a barn. And it would move and connect these people all the way um, to the north. Yeah. But now there is a sense of an infrastructure with the Harriet Tubman Byway that, that you referenced. So tell me a little bit more about that. Oh, yeah. That, the Underground Railroad Byway uh, is an amazing outreach tool because you have an app. You can download an app on your phone. That's the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Byway app. And it will you, – you, you get in your car and you – drive along these roadways and you stop at different spots. You can stop at churches. You can stop at her, her childhood home mm-hmm. in Bucktown. You can stop at the store where she was, she was hit in the head with a weight. Basically, that was a location of her first form of resistance when mm-hmm. she was trying to protect an enslaved boy from getting you know, captured by his enslaver. Mm-hmm. So you have this ability to look at this app and it'll talk to you as you drive. Mm-hmm. Or in some cases, it even has augmented reality. So you can hold oh, up your wow. phone and all of a sudden, this this time traveler, right. this person will pop up and, and they'll tell you all about what it was like to be living during the 19th century, whether they were enslaved or free or a Quaker. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And now the, the Harriet Tubman, those sites, when did, was MDOT part of the original discovery of those sites or did that predate some of these activities that the MDOT team was involved in? The most recent MDOT discoveries have been archaeological. Yeah. The other ones have been known. They're, they're extant buildings like the Bucktown Store. There's an X on the on the on the maps that show where Harriet Tubman grew up. Mm-hmm. So these sorts of places have been known for a while. Right. But um, MDOT is is instrumental sure. in doing the archaeology yeah. for the newer sites that are beginning to emerge. Right. So t- tell me more about what you found about Ben Ross's home now that you you know been out there you know. Girl from Minnesota in the swamps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what have we learned? Well, the interesting thing about this place in the swamp is that, one, we were able to locate it. I thought we'd have a hard time finding it just for the fact that people have been living there for thousands of years, yeah. you know, even up through, you know, 200 years ago when Anthony Thompson, the person who enslaved Ben Ross, had, you know, 30, 40 enslaved people out there on the property. So I thought we'd be finding 19th century sites all over the place, and that wasn't the case. So what we ended mm. up finding was bricks... We're bricks, we found nails, we found glass, broken dishes, bottles, buttons, smoking tobacco pipes, all artifacts that spoke to someone living there during the first half of the 19th century, which is when Ben would have been there. Mm -hmm. And because he was uh, a foreman that oversaw groups of people logging this part of Dorchester County, he had a location very near where the Blackwater River is, because this is the way that you would transport your lumber and your logs. Mm. It was the first interstate, if you will. Mm-hmm. 
So we began to learn about his life. We began to learn about the complexities of slavery, not just from the archaeology, but for the historical documents, and then being able to just look at the topography. Because we found that Ben Ross, who was enslaved, was living a mile away from the place where Anthony Thompson lived, the person who, who owned him. Right. And how could this be, right? And we're so used to going to plantation sites and, and places where people are enslaved and seeing these, these kind of rustic cabins right next to the manor house where there would be, there would be, they would be in view. When that happens, um, that makes sense. But when it's an, a mile away, what does that mean? Mm. Well, a couple of things. One, Ben Ross was looked at as trustworthy. He was a foreman, like an overseer. Right. So he had status um, within the enslaved community, and he had... Um, some sort of trust under Anthony Thompson. What that told me also is that he probably had a lot of opportunity to expose his daughter, Harriet Tubman, born Araminta Ross, to not only this sort of environment where he could teach her how to live in a wooded environment, in a swamp, but also being along the Blackwater River exposed to, to exposed her and him to maritime Black watermen, okay. so the maritime culture. Yeah. So when that happens, that means that these are people who have information. They can tell you what's going on. It's, in a way, the underground railroad of information. Right. But they also know the sky. They know the stars. They know what the North Star means. Uh-huh. So when you have Harriet Tubman in an environment that's very, very unforgiving, it's rustic. It's also you're being exposed to watermen you're in a way given a visual roadmap of how to get your people right. free. So you're getting information that people are wanting to move and you're learning about how to move people across waterways using the stars as navigation and that there's a world bigger than this swampy land that you're growing up in. Yes, and then I think that this also showed us that this swampy area was her training ground and her, her father was her teacher. Mm. And it really, I think resonated with me that you know you have this daughter who has such such um looks up so much so much to her father and that he was so influential in her life Mm -hmm. and so i think this is a great i think father-daughter relationship and story too that comes out of so so often we look at harriet tubman as this kind of lone woman by herself right that she just appeared yeah she appeared and she's she has this you know this this headscarf on and she has her dress on and she's She's, you know, elderly and she's taking people north. Mm. But I think that there's so much more to Harriet. And we're beginning to learn who she is by just digging in the swampy land and starting with her her roots, in this case, her father's home. And so now that you've found this and you've got these artifacts and these bricks, what what happens next in that process of preservation? So when you have an archaeological site, you have all these bits of stuff. And they get gathered up. We know exactly where they came from in time and space, meaning we have horizontal and vertical controls. We take them back to the lab. We analyze them, meaning we date them. Mm. We determine what they mean, how they're similar or different from other sites around the area. And we begin to use them to explain and tell the story of Harriet Tubman and her father. Mm -hmm. Because artifacts are so... Because you can touch them and hold them, it really brings brings history alive and it's really the best way to time yeah. travel. So I think this is a great example of how highway archaeologists aren't just digging up things and taking them away and, and putting them in a box in a museum somewhere. Right. But what we're doing is we realize the importance as as public servants to get out there and share this history with the public. And now there is out, out there near the site is the Harriet Tubman Museum. 
will some of these artifacts eventually make its way to that museum? Is that part of their path? Absolutely. As Indiana Jones said, it belongs yeah. in a museum. <laughs> yes, it does. It always belongs in a museum, <laughs> but it belongs in a museum that will reach a lot of people. And, and so these artifacts will go, there's so many artifacts. Yeah. And so some of them will go in the museum in Cambridge in this eastern shore of Dorchester, eastern shore of Dorchester County, but they can also be borrowed to and, and go to other places across the nation and the world. Sure. Um, these are collections that are for the public use and and study, and so we're very happy to be able to share those. And in terms of the site itself, you know, I know you found kind of the remnants of the foundation and can have a sense of where the house stood. What happens to the physical site? The physical site will remain uh, hidden and preserved. Uh, there is some concern that this could eventually be impacted by people who want to grab a piece of history for themselves and so mm. those locations will always be hidden hidden okay hidden and yes so it won't be on the app of the of the byway it no. won't tell me where to stop and look nope we're not going to give you where x marks a spot to an archaeological site because there's that potential of it being damaged yeah but just knowing that they were there that other people lived in the vicinity i think that'll that'll be enough mm-hmm. so i would imagine you know does everything else you work on pale in comparison? Is it <laughs> mundane? I mean, not not to speak negatively of mm-hmm. it, but, you know, I mean, that's such an exciting, amazing discovery. Um, you know, I live in Montgomery County. I'm waiting for the widening of the American Legion Bridge, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what's... <laughs> are, there, are there other things in the works that, you know, you're... I mean, there's always stuff in the works that you're working on, I'm sure. But give, give us a... That's an exciting out-of-the-ordinary project that you've gone to work on. But in the more traditional approach, do you have a project that might fit into that to illustrate the work you're doing? Yeah, the, there's, of course, the public outreach archaeology we mm. do with Harriet Tubman, yeah. but there are more project, directly project-related archaeological excavations. Our goal as highway archaeologists is to avoid, minimize, or mitigate right. our impacts to an archaeological site. So um, along I-495 is a good example of where we had a historic cemetery and we knew about it. Mm. And what we wanted to do is make sure that we didn't impact that. So we're going to a pro- through a process right now where we are designing to avoid impacting that historic cemetery. But as you know, with cemeteries and other historic places, these are communities' identity. Yeah. They're, they're sometimes the last thing they have left of their history. And so it can be very challenging sometimes to work with communities and let them know that, you know, we are a DOT, but we're here to support what you want. We work for you. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we have to balance with having a safe and effective infrastructure yeah. that gets people where they want to go, you know, safely to their families, to their friends, and to their work. Right. Do you have a big team that supports you, or are you a one-person one shiro yourself? Well, we have, we have many more archaeologists at MDOT. We have a lot of them in the State Highway Administration since that's going to be the part of MDOT that does the most right. ground disturbance. And we usually have about a dozen people, both archaeologists and architectural oh, wow. historians, and uh, I oversee all of MDOT. We also are in the process of getting people hired on to help us expand into the other uh, arms of the DOT, including uh, MVA. Oh, really? Because you think of MVAs, they're very more they're more campus based. They're simply when you think of an MVA as someone who's, you know, like an archaeologist, and you right. think that that's where you go get your license renewed or you get your license plate and sure. you wait in line in the building. Um, but the thing is, 
at the Maryland MVA, there's not much waiting in line. So we have to <laughs> yeah. have to get that on the record here, right? Otherwise, someone will catch that. But yeah, yes, that's go true. That's go, true. Go right yep. ahead. <laughs> so, um, but but the thing is, is that that's that's a place that you wouldn't think archaeology would have a role. Of course, because they're not expanding the physical presence. Right, but they do have buildings. Sometimes those buildings yeah. are 50 years or older, and that's where we need to think about: is this building historic? How long have they been here? Also, what about neighborhoods? These places uh, are next to neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. What, do the, what does the community think about um, this building or this um, these other structures that are associated with MVAs? What do they think about them being in their neighborhoods? And how can we be better neighbors? Mm-hmm. So we're looking at how cultural resources is not just about um, historic buildings and archaeological sites and cemeteries, but cultural resources is also about communities and descendant communities and neighborhoods. It's about people, both living and those who have passed. Interesting. So is that where you would maybe come in, and is that more about um, coaching the relationship between the agency and their community rather than what might have been the traditional look of the physical structure and the physical impact? Yeah, absolutely. So cultural resources, since we are expanding beyond the physical remains, of old things, and we're right. going into to communities and neighborhoods who are are, are living, mm-hmm. and we're noticing that this past, these things, these structures, these buildings affect them, and uh, equate and impact their liv- a livable community. Interesting. So by talking to them, we can find out what's important to you. What what do you want us? What is important to you? How do you want us to do things? What is your opinion? So it's all about communication and reaching out, not waiting for them to come to us, but us coming to them. Fascinating. You're just starting that now. We're just starting as, this at, as, as a archaeologist, architectural historian type cultural resources section. We're going, we're beginning to look at what that's going to look like. How do we make those, those, those connections? Where do we begin? So we're kind of on a cutting edge beginning of this whole thing because not all DOTs do this. But Maryland's beginning yeah. to look at everything from, you know, using archaeological sites and historic sites and history in general, connect that with environmental justice. Yes. Well, it'd be interesting to hear how that progresses because the, the, the parallel conversation that we have heard are uh, MVAs, DMVs, that are trying to look at where are they located relative to certain communities. Have there been unintentional prejudices, for lack mm-hmm. of a better phrase, by creating presences that are easier to access for some communities and harder to access for other communities. And when a community needs to, you know, take three buses and cross a poorly marked intersection to get to your DMV location, um, what's the impact to those communities that, that you aren't in? And mm-hmm. as in addition to the ones that you are in and how do you interact with. Um, but when you talk about environmental and social justice in the context of interacting with an MVA, um, that's a parallel conversation I've heard that sounds has some relative themes to where, where you're going with this project. Yeah, absolutely. And, and because so much of what we do is history, the history of what's happened and the history of those neighborhoods is all going to be part of that conversation. Yeah. Well, then that is a perfect um, uh, perfect leave behind for us to maybe come back to you and you tell me, a year, two years, six months, however long this project is going to take, where you can say, hey, we've tried some of this stuff and love to tell you about how Cultural Resources is working with uh, the MVA. I think that's a real exciting nexus that I'll look forward to keeping in touch and maybe hearing more on our next episode with you. 
Yep, sounds good. Yeah, well, thanks for joining me today, Dr. Julie. Thank you for spending time with us in Baltimore a few weeks ago. I know all the attendees really loved it, and now hopefully more folks have a taste. Um, if they want to learn more about particularly the work with the Harriet Tubman site, is there anything online that folks could go and look up and learn more? Absolutely. If you just even just Google the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Byway but, mm -hmm. and the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center, they'll be able to find uh, resources and another way to learn more about Harriet Tubman. Excellent. Well, thanks again. Thank you all for listening this week. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.